Hello, this is Gregory Novak. This is The Cunning of Geist, episode 25. Welcome back. Please follow me on Twitter or on the Cunning of Geist Facebook page, both at Cunning of Geist. Happy Easter to all those that celebrate. And very appropriately, I'm actually recording this episode on Easter Sunday. And as you all know, Easter is celebrated by by Christians around the world today. And also, it's celebrated by those that just love Easter egg hunts. But anyway, clearly the most important holiday in the Christian church is Easter. And this is what we're going to be speaking about today, particularly Hegel's unique take on the resurrection of Jesus, in which Easter is the celebration of that fact. But first, a bit about the Easter holiday. It is celebrated on the first Sunday after the first full moon following the spring equinox. Uh, So Easter is celebrated at the time of rebirth of nature, so to speak. The other major Christian holiday, Christmas, is linked uh, to the winter solstice. So it seems natural to position these holidays on the changing cycle of the yearly calendar. Christmas occurs in the northern hemisphere when days begin to get longer again, and um, the increasingly darker and darker days are over. And um, Easter uh, is associated with the arrival of spring in the northern hemisphere, the vernal equinox, when the days are equally long and night, and they're continuing to get longer. Very interestingly, the important Jewish holiday of Passover is also celebrated around this time, uh, which uh, celebrates the Hebrews' freedom from being slaves in Egypt. And um, in fact, many believe that the Last Supper of Jesus, which is talked about in the Bible, was in fact, this Last Supper was a Passover supper celebration. And there are many symbols in the Passover holiday that that celebrate spring, the the coming of new life. There's an egg. um, There's also a, a, a shank bone, which is the symbolic Paschal lamb, which may have um, presaged uh, Jesus. Um, there's also the celebration of Elijah, uh, who's part of the Passover ceremony. He gets a glass filled in his honor and is left untouched on the table with hope that someday he will actually come to the table and announce the arrival of the Messiah. So there are many clear similarities here between Passover and Easter, and it's probably not surprising because Jesus and, and the original uh, disciples of his were all Jews and considered themselves Jews. They were born Jews and died Jews. Um, but we'll be getting into this. Just a bit more on, on Easter. It, the, the word Easter comes from an old pre-Christian Germanic w- word, Oster, or Ostern, which means the rising of the sun. Uh, Easter, or Auster, is also a Germanic goddess of dawn who was celebrated often in the uh, spring equinox back then. Um, in fact, the old Germanic calendar, the equivalent month at this time, was called Ostermenod, or Easter month. So, as we've said, the spring equinox celebrates the resurrection of life in the world. You can see at this time of year in the northern hemisphere when flowers start blooming again and the buds appear in the trees and life appears to be returning. So, now let's get into the purpose of this episode, the resurrection. As I said, the resurrection is really the heart of Christianity. It's the most important holiday in this faith. And the resurrection is obviously uh, what occurred with Jesus when he um, arose from from the tomb after his crucifixion. Now, just let's just do a quick, brief review on who who Jesus was. 
He was a Jewish prophet. He lived in Israel um, in the first century BCE. And um, many of his followers felt that he was the promised Messiah of the Jews. Some uh, of the Hebrew leaders at the time after he had been preaching felt that he was uh, presenting a radical theology against the the traditions uh, that they held. Uh, So they had him um, reported to the Roman authorities, and he was arrested. He was brought before the Roman head of the territory, Pontius Pilate. He was found guilty, and he was sentenced to die by crucifixion. And um, he was, in fact, crucified. It's believed on the Friday during the day before Shabbos, the Sabbath, which starts at sundown. Uh, He did eventually give up the ghost on that on the cross. He was taken down a bit early because by custom they have to take the bodies down before sunset. Um, They don't leave it up there for three days because of the Sabbath. But he was taken and buried. And according to the New Testament Gospels, on Sunday, following his crucifixion, following the Sabbath, some women came and saw that the rock in front of his grave had been moved and the body was gone. It was empty. Story also goes on to say that Jesus, in fact, appeared to these women in bodily form. He had risen from the grave. He'd come back from the dead. And he went on then to meet with his other disciples. In fact, continued his ministry for another 40 days, as they said, before he finally ascended up to heaven. So the question, the $64 million question is this, did this actually occur? Now, it's very important to say that many Christians believe that this episode is, this resurrection is fundamental to Christianity. There's no resurrection, there's no Christianity. Um, They believe that the resurrection corrected the original sin of Adam, and now humankind has been redeemed. Obviously, the story has many complicated implications and interpretations. We'll get into a few of them here, concentrating mostly on Hegel's unique take. Um, But in order to understand Hegel's take on the resurrection, we have to briefly cover his take on Christianity as a whole. Now, I did a complete episode on Hegel and Christianity in episode five of The Cunning of Geist. So if you want more detail on this, please listen to that episode where I talk about Hegel's views on Christianity. Let me just do a quick review here, though. As I said, his his take is not traditional by any stretch of the imagination. And to boil it all down, he believed that Christianity involves three different phases of God. First, there was God the Father, who is separate from humankind in heaven. Then this God symbolically dies in, in, in the birth of, of the Son of God uh, on earth. So God now becomes, from God in heaven up above, he now becomes a person walking around on planet Earth. He's become one person, one live human being. And this was a big step in people's understanding of God. And it, 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 interestingly, to put a perspective on this, uh, the great psychologist C.G. Jung uh, felt that the um, biblical story of Job um, actually foreshadowed this move of God come, going from heaven and becoming a, a person on Earth. Um, he wrote a book about it in 1952 called Answer to Job, And in a nutshell, Jung believed that uh, Job turned out to be a more moral character and have a better conscience than God. In fact, uh, the story goes, in the biblical story, God makes a bet with the devil as to whether Job will stay loyal. And the bet goes like this, that 
if severe misfortune is bestowed on Job, the devil says Job will only will, will not stay loyal anymore. He's only loyal to God because he's wealthy and prosperous. God disagrees, makes the bet, and then the everything bad that could happen then occurs to Job. I'm not going to detail it here. It's a fascinating story, but he stays loyal and true. So finally, God, after winning the bet, intervenes and re, reinstates all of Job's wealth. A, uh, a favorite Jungian scholar of mine, Murray, Murray Stein, states how Jung views this, and I quote this from Murray Stein's book, Jung on Christianity, from 1999, page 285. Quote, in Jung's interpretation, Job is completely innocent. He is a scrupulous, pious man who follows all the religious conventions, and for most of his life, he is blessed with good fortune. This is the expected outcome for a just man in a rationally ordered universe. But then God allows Satan to work on him, bring misfortune and misery. Being overwhelmed with questions and images of divine majesty and power, Job is then silenced. He realizes his inferior position vis-a-vis the Almighty. But he also retains his personal integrity. And this so impresses God that he is forced to take stock of himself. Perhaps he is not so righteous after all. And out of this astonishing self-reflection induced in God by Job's stubborn righteousness, he, the Almighty, is pushed into a process of transformation that leads eventually to his incarnation as Jesus. God develops empathy and love through his confrontation with Job, and out of it a new relationship between God and humankind is born. End quote. So that that really summarizes what uh, what what Jung covers in his book, and and um, what Jung believed to be the process of how God changed and actually became a, a human. So this is the, the second step: God becoming a person. Now there's a third step, however. This Son of God, this God Man, God Person, then has to die as well. And the spirit does not die with, with this death. It is actually birthed into the world through the, the community. Uh, the, 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 uh, the human God must die because um, this shows that the human God is truly finite, 100% finite. And, and being that, being 100% finite includes death. But the spirit does not die here the Spirit of God, it's reborn, transformed into the spirit of the community, community of believers. So this is also Hegel's take uh, on Christianity. It's boiled down to its most basic concept. So it's, it's also important to step back and see how Hegel's view on the resurrection uh, and, uh, and Christianity relates to his broader scheme, his, his, his um, scheme of logic, nature, and spirit. Let me just cover this briefly. Logic is the first part. It's reason, rationality. It is timeless. It is fundamental. Logic next others itself into nature. It does this freely so that it can know itself concretely. Nature is the world, obviously, of time and space and matter, the external objective world. However, the process does not stop there. Um, it does not stop in a um, Cartesian dichotomy of mind and nature. In, in Hegel's project, both mind and nature are sublated by a third element, spirit, Geist. 
Spirit is the development of mind within nature. It is a historical process. This is key to Hegelianism. It's working itself out through time. It's mind coming to know itself concretely in nature, uh, to become uh, more free and more self-aware of itself. Now, spirit itself, uh, it's, it's evolving in nature. It, it also has three parts. The first is subjective spirit. This is one's own personal subjective being, their psychology. The second is objective spirit, which is how these individual subjects work together and organize themselves in society. And the third is absolute spirit, which is the comprehension of spirit within the society, how the spirit comes to know itself within its society of individuals. And this is accomplished by three elements. Surprise, surprise. First is art. Second is religion. And third is philosophy. So we finally come to where religion fits into his whole scheme. Uh, and it's important to note that these three aspects of absolute spirit, um, they build on each other. It's not that philosophy supplants religion or that religion supplants art. Each builds on the previous. All three express spirit, but each does it in a successively more complete form. Hegel certainly sees religion as expressing the truth of spirit, but it does it through pictures, through narratives, through stories. Philosophy gets to a fuller understanding of these truths through reason, through the intellect. Um, but Hegel's very clear on this. Both religion and philosophy are dealing with the same fundamental truth of spirit. Now we finally come to deal directly with Hegel's understanding of, of the re resurrection. First, he clearly states that um, in considering the resurrection, one cannot look at it as a matter of historical record. It's much different than this. Um, Hegel points this out in his uh, The Spirit of Christianity and Its Fate, which he wrote in 1798. And I'll be quoting uh, several passages here from section five of that work entitled The Fate of Jesus and His Church. Hegel says, quote, To consider the resurrection of Jesus as an event is to adopt the outlook of the historian, and this has nothing to do with religion, end quote. Let me repeat that. To consider the resurrection of Jesus as an event is to adopt the outlook of the historian, and this has nothing to do with religion. And he goes on, quote, Belief or disbelief in the resurrection is a mere fact deprived of its religious interest is a matter for the intellect whose occupation is just the death of religion, and to have recourse to the intellect means to abstract from religion, end quote. So Hegel is saying that the historical truth of this fact is the death of religion. And it's funny, my wife has been saying th this concept for as long as I have known her, that religion is not about facts or history. Uh, it's just basically what narratives one chooses to believe in. And, and a good example of this is it's like a great novel or a great film. One can find tremendous inspiration in, in a great novel or a great film. And th they can even use it as a basis for a life strategy or a life philosophy or daily inspiration. And one doesn't have to believe that that actually occurred. That's beside the point. The story itself is enough to make a real impact in, in one's life. It can actually be more impactful than actual history. So, And religion can be very much like this. Um, Hegel acknowledged that the intellect works on a different level than religion. He does not dismiss the intellect, but says it's an entirely different thing. He, he goes on, I quote, But of course, the intellect seems to have a right 
to discuss the matter, since the objective aspect of God is not simply love given shape, it also subsists on its own accord and, as a reality, claims a place in the world of realities. For this reason, it is hard to cling to the religious aspect of the risen Jesus. End quote. Hegel's saying here that the intellect has a right to weigh in here and that it's hard to buy this concept of a bodily risen Jesus intellectually. Now, Hegel isn't the only one to think this. Um, it's interesting. Um, there's a great philosopher, contemporary philosopher, Alvin Plantinga, um, he's, as I said, he's a uh, great philosopher. He's a traditional Christian. He's a major Christian apologist at work today, along with others such as William Lane Craig and R.C. Sproul. His work, um, Warranted Christian Belief, is a masterwork of, of hard philosophy taking a look at religion. Plantinga would, would agree with Hegel that the resurrection is a matter of faith, not historical fact. And he has an interesting concept explaining all this called uh, what he calls dwindling possibilities. And this is a little intellectual exercise, not a matter of faith. It goes roughly like this. To discuss whether the physical resurrection actually occurred, you have to first say, well, what is the probability that there's a God? Okay, let, let's say that it's 95%. Now you say, how can you do that? Well, even the leading atheist, Richard Dawkins, says there's probably some possibility that God exists. So he even says that. So on the flip side, we could also say that, all right, there's a 95% chance that there's a God. So what's next? What is the chance that he would have a son? Um, let's put that at 70%. What's the chance that he would send this son to earth to become a person? Let's say 50%. What's the chance that this son would fulfill his role here? Let's say that's 50%. What's the chance that he would rise from the dead? Let's say, well, that's 25%. Now, it's clear, if you add all these probabilities together, you get a very small chance that the resurrection could have actually occurred, given everything. Astrophysicist Carl Sagan had a famous statement, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So Plantinga, a traditional Christian, is saying what Hegel is saying. The resurrection is just not intellectually justifiable. But it's the narrative that they believe, the story. And in his book, uh, Warranted Christian Belief, Plantinga argues persuasively that it is certainly intellectually warranted to hold this belief. It's not false. Um, it does not have to be historically proven or actually occurred. But uh, back to uh, the spirit of Christianity and its faith, which Hegel wrote. He talks about what this objective concept of the resurrection could be. Quote, the objective aspect of God, his configuration, is objective only insofar as it is simply the presentation of the love uniting the group, end quote. So Hegel is saying the intellectual philosophical meaning of the resurrection is that it occurred in the love that united the group, as we discussed previously and earlier in his take on, on Christianity. Um, he explains how this might have actually occurred. This is interesting. Quote, after Jesus died, his disciples were like sheep without a shepherd. A friend of theirs was dead, but they had hoped he would be the one who was to free Israel. And this hope was all over with his death. He had taken everything into the grave with him. His spirit had not remained hidden in them. Their religion, their faith and pure life had hung on the individual Jesus. He was their living bond. In him, the divine had taken shape and been revealed. In him, good too had appeared to them. His individuality united for them in a one living being, the indeterminate and the determinate elements of the entire harmony, 
with his death, they were thrown back on the separation of visible and invisible reality and spirit, end quote. So Hegel is saying that when Jesus lived, he united in his disciples reality and spirit, united the finite with the truly infinite. Hegel goes on, what was wanting in the divinity present in the loving community, what was wanting in the community's life was an image and a shape. But in the risen Jesus lifted up heavenward, the image found life again, and love found the objectification of its oneness. In this remarriage of spirit and body, the opposition between the living and the dead Jesus has vanished, and the two are united in a God. Love's longing has found itself as a living being and can now enjoy itself, and worship of this being is now the religion of the group. The need for religion finds its satisfaction in the risen Jesus, in love thus given shape, end quote. So Hegel is saying that by worshiping a risen Jesus, a spiritual Jesus lifted up in heaven, the disciples once again found the link of the finite and the truly infinite in one form, love given shape. Now, um, it's interesting to look at uh, the Apostle Paul, St. Paul. He seemed to hold a similar view. Uh, Just a little bit of background. Paul was a Greek Jew, a Pharisee, who was a a persecutor of the early Christians before he found uh, Jesus. He was present and condoned the stoning of Christians, the murder of of these um, heretics, which is covered in the New Testament. However, he was on his way to Damascus to find and persecute Christian Jews as heretics, and he had a miraculous vision of the risen Jesus. Now, it's clearly the risen Jesus here. No one could argue uh, that the real physical Jesus, who um, only uh, in the story was around for 40 days after his crucifixion, could have found Paul on this road, um, which was two or three years after after the crucifixion. So this is clearly an ascended Jesus, a spiritual Jesus um, that, that, that Paul witnessed, perhaps in some form of meditation of, of his. And Paul uh, was was clearly the primary salesman of the early Christian church. A significant portion of the New Testament was written by him. It's easy to say that without Paul's writings, we would not have the Christian church we have today. And just as an aside, there's a great new biography of St. Paul entitled Paul by N.T. Wright. And he argues that Paul himself saw himself as a Jew, saw Jesus as fulfilling the promise of Israel that Jesus was uh, the Messiah in terms of the separation of God and man was now over. What occurred in the Garden of Eden was now over. That the Jewish people were established with a special mission, and now that that had concluded. Christianity now was open for all. And it's very interesting. This is the biggest bone of contention in the early Christian church, whether or not to allow non-Jews to join. As I said, they consider themselves Jews. But Paul was very instrumental in this to make it universal to Jew and Gentile alike. Now, also, N.T. Wright in the book claims that that Paul believed that that heaven is not something we go to after after death. Heaven is something that's going to occur here on earth. It's, It's not going to be a place we go to after we die. It's that we are all working as a community uh, in spirit, to bring about a time when when more and more people, when eventually all can recognize the union of nature and spirit, of the finite and the truly infinite here on earth. 
And this is also the essence of Hegelianism to me, spirit working itself out through history. Um, we've discussed Hegel's view of life, death, and resurrection as a strong correspondence to his overall system of logic, nature, and spirit. And just to sum up here finally, two statements of Hegel. First, he states, in the Christian religion, God has revealed himself, i.e. he has given men to understand what he is, so he is no longer a concealment, a secret. That's from the Philosophy of History, uh, book one, page 45. And specifically about the death of Jesus, he says, I quote, in the death of Christ, the finitude of man has been killed for the true consciousness of spirit. This death of the natural has, in the way, a universal significance. The finite evil in general is annihilated. Thus, the world has become reconciled. The world has become divested of its evil through this death. That's from the Philosophy of Religion, Hegel's Philosophy of Religion, Book 3, pages 172 to 173. Hegel here is stating that, in his whole philosophy, the spirit has overcome pure nature, the finite natural world. And this is the process that's working itself out through the march of history, through the cunning of Geist. Not that evil has somehow immediately disappeared. This is not what occurred. But spirit is now alive in the world, in the spiritual community. And it's working through us for a better world. And that is what we celebrate today. That's what I celebrate today. So that's it for this episode. Um, a quick note, I will now be providing specific references to the work cited in this episode on the Cunning of Geist Facebook page. So you don't need to take notes. I will, on the Cunning of Geist Facebook page, list the various works that I've cited here in this episode. Also, as I said before, please, if you enjoy this podcast, tell your friends about it. Tell them in person. Tell them on social media. I would certainly appreciate it. And as I say each time, thanks thanks to all of you. Thanks for listening to this, this episode and to the various episodes of this podcast so much. Thank you. This is Gregory Novak. This is The Cunning of Geist. See you next time.